welcome to the School Sucks Project, a podcast, YouTube channel, and an online community dedicated to personal growth and intellectual self-defense. And what do we do? We promote learning alternatives, home education, critical thinking, peaceful parenting, organization and productivity, and better communication strategies. Please remember to visit SchoolSucksProject.com for comprehensive show notes, infographics, hot dog recipes, book suggestions, or to just leave comments. Follow us on Twitter at School Sucks Show. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, username School Sucks Podcast, and get involved in our Facebook group. Just search for School Sucks Project. And here's Brett. everybody welcome back to school sucks today is may 21st and this is part two with jeff till six more arguments for home education so it is allergy season here and that's why it sounds like i've got a clothespin on my nose and i'm really hoping uh, that resolves itself i'm going to the health food store today to pick up something called stinging nettle that's that's the route i prefer to go before you know the more drastic measures like going to the pharmacy and having to show my ID because what I want to buy is one of the primary ingredients in meth to make myself better. You ever have a situation where you are like talking about something being wrong with you and um, you say, oh, I take uh, Claritin and somebody says, oh, you shouldn't take that. It's really bad for you. I'm one of those people. So yeah, playing around with some herbs, Echinacea, you know the score. And already received two inquiries. Brett, why does the voiceover girl go at the end of the call to action there? Well, look, intros and outros are an important part of podcast marketing. And I've always struggled with marketing, so I've decided we'll play their game, but we're going to make up some of our own rules. Hot dog recipes. Hot dog recipes. Good. All right, here we go. Hey, Jeff, welcome back to the show. Hi, Brad. Uh, thanks so much again for having me. My pleasure. Hey, you know, I was listening to the first hour that we did, and I realized I probably didn't give you enough credit for being able to express these rational ideas about the relationship children should have to the state in a place like Massachusetts, right? I mean, that's where you are. That's a difficult place to be a libertarian, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's um, it's very contrarian um it, it makes people angry i, I mean i've uh, this was years ago but you know i had the ron paul sticker on my car back in 2008 and you know i, I would walk out of a cocktail party and people would you know yell at me like, really yeah people I, I haven't even met what would they say you know that it was crazy you know implying that i was unkind and and selfish and and unreasonable hmm. um and then you know the homeschool thing uh even when that started coming up and that was when, when i was getting ready to move People, you know, thought I was an alien species. They didn't understand it at all. Anytime you, you go to homeschool, a lot of people, uh, especially if they have kids in school or if they've been schooled themselves, you know, take it as sort of uh, an insult to their morality and their, their good sense. Yeah, and a very sacred institution as well. Yeah, so they can mind. become very, very hostile. Yeah, you know, I, I went to uh, graduate school in western Massachusetts, which is, you know, to some extent a, a different environment than, than eastern Massachusetts. But the state is very blue politically, and it's also, uh, it, well, it, at least it prides itself uh, as being the birthplace 
of uh, public education in America. I remember I was tutoring. One day, I was like particularly frustrated about the things I was involved in. Uh, I, I might have just uh, been coming from a meeting at a school, and mm-hmm. I was in, I don't know, I want to say Dover, somewhere near Dover, Massachusetts, which is like south of Boston. I'm driving, and I'm following directions, and all of a sudden, I just happen upon this giant statue of Horace Mann. Really? Seemingly, yeah, seemingly in the middle of nowhere. And it, it said something like, Massachusetts, the birthplace of public education. I forget the town it was in. Yeah, that was something. And at the time, I knew a lot, a lot less about man than I do now. I knew he was considered the father of uh, public schooling. I learned that in graduate school. And I knew that uh, he was real into the science of trying to uh, determine important aspects of people's personalities by feeling the bumps on their head. So <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I, I remember uh, hearing that that podcast. Yeah, well, Ta- Massachusetts also um, by by every federal measure, uh, it vies for one or two with uh, New Hampshire for the best public schools in America. Yep. Um, so, but I'm not sure. You know, in our definition of of what makes a successful school, you know, that would almost be a nefarious uh, or sinister kind of ranking, I guess. Mm, yeah. That's an interesting conversation to have. Two states that are so different, um, traditionally anyway, ideologically, a lot of people do come to this side of the Iron Curtain in New Hampshire because they want to flee the tax burden of Massachusetts, and then they start to feel uncomfortable about seeing people riding their bikes around without helmets or you know, driving without seatbelts. One of the things that they, they took out of Massachusetts that absolutely infuriated me was the little click stop on the gas pumps. You know, so you oh, can yeah. pull this. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and now they're they're getting rid of them in New Hampshire because I guess we can't be trusted with those little clickers that hold the gas pump. If for those people who don't know, you pull in the gas pump and then there's this little clamp you can put in so it doesn't you don't have to stand there and hold it. You can go wash your windows. Unsafe in Massachusetts. Yeah, well, they, they must make that decision like in May, because if you're in New Hampshire in January, uh, holding that gas pump. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's is, is like torture. Yeah, I remember I had to, when I lived in Salem, Mass, I had to uh, find these little things that I could use, you know, to prop the, the thing up so I could walk around while the gas was pumping. And somebody yelled at me one day and said, that's illegal. And I always remember that was such a perfect statement about my time in Massachusetts. But anyway, I, I just wanted to say, I know you're a stranger in a strange land there. It's a difficult place to be a libertarian, to... Uh, be asserting these ideas about, you know, how children should be educated outside of that sacred institution or how children can be really educated instead of schooled. I know that's a, a, probably a difficult place to be at times. Yeah. Well, I, I did, I did move out of Massachusetts uh, yep. a year ago. Yep. Yeah. So I'm in, I'm in the Charleston area now in South Carolina. South Carolina isn't quite as liberal as uh, Massachusetts was. Right. Yeah. By any stretch. So how could it be? <laughs> So we are going to pick up with our second uh, six uh, arguments for home education today. And I just wanted to explain a little bit to to people about my method. We decided on 12 out of your 54. I figured we would do two shows, uh, six per show, 10 minutes per each argument. So that was how we came up with 12. Uh, There's certainly more that we could have talked about. We could have picked three and gone way more in depth. But uh, I wanted to make this uh, accessible to, you know, a wider audience and, uh, you know, try to tap into different arguments that might resonate with people that they could use in different situations. And like we talked about in the last show, we all might have to make this case to somebody, a family, very common, friends, very common, even in more academic, you know, non, not personal, but academic discussions about schooling versus education. Uh, it's nice to have a wide variety 
uh, of arguments to make. So you certainly provide that here, and I'm trying to represent it the best we can in these uh, 12 reasons. Yeah, and just let me just add that add to that real quick. Um, I was trying to be comprehensive and complete and yeah. sort of create a tool here, um, but there's another effect that I think that I hope that this uh, piece can can do is it, there's sort of a piling on effect. Mm. You can't. You probably would have a hard time, even if you were a you know a staunch supporter of school, you, you probably would find something to agree with or something that you couldn't object to in this 54 item list. And all 54 arguments don't have to be agreed upon or refuted, you know, you only need a few to actually make the decision to try home education. Absolutely. So I'm hoping it's a good tool that way. Yes, absolutely. So we move on to the seventh one on our list, the argument against peer pressure. Conformity training leads to students not wanting to be different and to gain the mass approval of others. This is peer pressure, and it can force kids into behaviors they don't want and bring feelings of rejection, embarrassment, and shame. Home education doesn't teach conformity and lessens the effects of peer pressure because the groups of people they associate with are voluntary. All the difference in the world. And what's been your experience with this one? Well, so far with my um, home educated children, we haven't we haven't seen much of that. Hmm. Um, the groups of of people we expose them to, are, you know, are um, they all get along? Since since there's no teacher constantly judging and and grading and supervising them. You know, I, I think they do escape peer pressure. Oddly enough, they don't completely escape it. Last summer, we had all this this great group of girls in our neighborhood who all got got along and played uh, constantly. But once school started, as soon as September rolled around, they split up into cliques almost immediately, mm. and then they stopped associating with each other. You know, freely in the neighborhood. Now, what I'm really curious to, to see what happens is um, school's going to come out like in a week or two. And I wonder if all that will be reversed and the girls will start all playing together again. Right. The cliques dissolve a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure they will, but I, I, I'm really curious to see if that'll happen. Yeah. I, I, one of the reasons why I wanted to include this one is, um, you know, you mentioned conformity and I put that forward as one of the most prevalent and most damaging hidden lessons of school right at the beginning of the show. But it was in regard to the conformity we have to the expectations of authorities and really not conformity to peer groups, which also can be fairly destructive to the individual, right? Because it's not about living consciously. You're not uh, accepting who you really are. You're not even trying to consciously discover who you really are. And I, I think that when kids are younger, maybe they're generally less aware of themselves, wanting to assert themselves as individuals before they really, you know, have some success and feel efficacious and have that need or desire for, for independence. And when they start to have it, when they want to start asserting an identity, they don't really know how to do it because there's never been any uh, fostering of that. There's never been any nurturing of that in the school environment. So you start to see these cliques that have these group identities that people can go and fit into. And for me, like I never remember thinking about, you know, cliques or not being friends with everybody in the class until we were getting ready for middle school. Then when I got to middle school, it was shocking. It was like watching these packs of different animals, you mm -hmm. know, roaming, roaming the halls. And, uh, you know, that was the case in high school uh, as well. Cliques are maybe, you know, more diverse today. You have more options in school for the cliques you want to join. We didn't have goth or anything like that or emo. Uh, back when I was in high school, it was just like punks, jocks, uh, nerds, and preps. 
you know. Yeah, no, that that was essentially what we. I think we yeah, we had stoners as well. Stoners. Oh, see that actually in my school, and we're going to talk about drugs in a little bit. But that's funny. I'm just realizing that in my school, that was like the social glue. That was how the punks and the preps got together. Now there were stoners, right? So the stoners were like this click bridge, you know, because they were the ones who had the weed. The preps wanted the weed. The punk kids wanted the weed. Even some of the nerds, you know. And that mm-hmm. was that. I remember just ditching school with a punk, a nerd, a jock, <laughs> and I was the prep, you know. And and that was, so that was interesting. Yeah, and y'all got into the mystery machine. <laughs> the um, right. Yeah, well, so our, our stoners all had sort of a, a uniform of like a middle part in their long hair, uh, a, a, a jean denim jacket that had a, a painting on the back. Yeah. And then holy jeans, you know, maybe some boots or some uh, sneakers. So the identifier was was more clear then, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So before we started uh, recording today, we had actually talked about uh, the ash experiments a little bit. And uh, for people who weren't familiar, this was a conformity study that was done by a social psychologist named Solomon Ash in the mid-1950s. And he saw it as a real indictment uh, after he put together his findings of the education system in the United States. And the way the experiment worked, it was essentially he, w- he was using a subject's college students, so students who had just come out of the public school system. And he would bring them into a room filled with Confederates. So, you know, the subject thought everybody in the room was participating in some kind of study. And the group would be shown these lines. In the lines, uh, it would say, which line is longer? And, you know, the groups would just say, this line is longer, that line is longer. And it would start out with everybody answering, giving the obvious correct answers. But as it went on, the group the Confederates would start giving wrong answers. And what uh, Ash wanted to see is how frequently people would go against their perception, go against their, this like, I know this is what's right for the sake of not having to deal with the discomfort of not fitting in. Do you know what the percentage was of people who conformed to clearly wrong answers? Sometimes seven inch differences in the lines. Lay it on me. 75% conformed at least once. 5% conformed every time. And when surrounded by individuals all voicing a correct answer, participants provided incorrect responses on a high proportion of the questions, 32% of the time. Overall, yeah, there was 37% conformity rate by subjects averaged across all critical trials. In a control group, with no pressure to conform to an erroneous answer, only one subject out of 35 gave an incorrect answer. So do you think think that's... um the conformity is them uh, like subconsciously uh, altering their view of reality, or is it more of a defense mechanism uh, or, or you know, sort of seeking safety and, and not wanting to uh, have conflict? No, I, I think that there was some discussion about this. In, in some cases, it was actually a combination of the two. So in Ash's conclusion, he wrote, why did the participants conform so readily? When they were interviewed after the experience, most of them said they did not really believe their conforming answers, but had gone along with the group for fear of being ridiculed or thought to be peculiar. A few of them said that they really did believe the group's answers were correct. Apparently, people conform for two main reasons, because they want to fit in with the group, which is called normative influence, and because they believe, this is an interesting one, and it says a lot about school, they believe the group is better informed than they are, which is called informational influence. So 
yeah, I mean, that is essentially collectivism, which school teaches all too well, you know? It's why people, you know, talk about some decision that was made behind the closed doors of a room that they were not in, and they use the pronoun we. I think that this idea that the group is more capable, the group has more wisdom automatically than an individual could ever have. I mean, after all, the group is bigger. I guess the answer is it's both. And I think there there maybe is this more instinctual drive because we are social animals and we have this need for belonging. We have this need for uh, feeling safe that certainly can come from being accepted in a group that the logical faculties or even like, <laughs> I guess in some case, I guess it's possible. I actually talked about this on a show not too long ago. The five senses can be distorted to meet this need in some way. Yeah, if you think if you think about how uh, classroom training is, uh, which is you know the majority of the school day is you know you have twenty five or thirty kids uh, all quietly sitting at their desk. Yeah, and the only time that you you're allowed to provide an answer is you know either you have to raise your hand or you're called upon, and then you know you're suddenly it's like sort of one kid against the teacher and the other you know, 28 students in the room to see whether you're right or wrong. It's not like you get to constantly go into small groups and negotiate and have debates and, you know, speak freely without that, that sort of constant uh, scrutiny of, um, you know, one versus the pack. Yeah. And I don't know how, you know, it, you know, I don't know if that's, you know, uh, a design point for, you know, uh, training peer pressure, but it's, it would sure, sure seem to contribute to it. Yeah, the carrots and sticks comes into this too, right? Like you'll be, this, this is a horrifying memory from middle school. You'll be punished for not paying attention. You'll be punished by the social group. So I remember being bored out of my wits in some math class. It was like seventh or eighth grade. And I would sit there and I would draw. I was real into like designing golf courses and, you know, building, <laughs> uh, drawing baseball stadiums. Like th these were like really, fun activities for me. And I got really good at it, thanks to, you know, school. I didn't really work on this project too much out of school, but I became very passionate about, you know, getting a, um, like a, a landscape picture and then like figuring out how to make a golf course on it. Or uh, same, same thing with um, designing um, sports stadiums or drawing houses and stuff like that. So anyway, I would be real deep into this activity. And then all of a sudden in this math class, I would hear my name. And this went on for a year with this, this teacher that I had. Even though I knew the consequences of not paying attention, I could just not force myself to pay attention to something I wasn't interested in, especially when I had the option of all these exciting side <laughs> projects. Yeah. You know, So I would hear my name and I would just freeze. And everyone would look at me. And this felt like it would go on forever. You know, Like sometimes five seconds just sitting there in silence before I would say, I don't know. And then sometimes the teacher would say, were you paying attention? And obviously I wasn't. And everyone's eyes in the room were on me. So that was kind of a punishment that the teacher would use for not paying attention. I think, you know, as a teacher, I could always look out into a room of people and tell who was engaged and tell who wasn't. So the fact that she would selectively call out people who um, clearly weren't paying attention, clearly had some other kind of project going on, that was a stick that was used. Yeah, I had, a, um, I had a math teacher in seventh grade that if, um, you know, you weren't participating in class, he would actually have you come up to the front of the room, uh -huh. um, have you, have you uh, hold your arms out, like straight out, like bird wings, what? and then have you squat, you know, to about a, like a 50% like squat, 
and um, it's, it's, it becomes enormously painful. It's like doing a, a like an exercise squat. Your your arms begin to ache and your your thighs begin to ache. Yeah. But besides this, you know, it's almost like um, you know what people in the Middle Ages would do to humiliate you know uh, you know thieves you know by putting them in the stocks or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, you were just sent to the front of the room in this ridiculous position while everyone watched your you know your face turn red and you know you started to sweat. Now, would this be done in like a fun way, or no? It was it was punitive. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, it's definitely punitive. Did it have like a mask of being like, ha ha, you weren't yeah, paying attention? Yeah. yeah well, that, it was the it, but not at the um, the fun for the person who was being punished. exactly it was, it was exactly for the fun of the rest of the class. You know, we all got a good chuckle. You know, watching this poor soul suffer. Yeah. You know, until it was your turn, and and I I, I think it, you had to have a, a more serious offense than uh, than daydreaming. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and the the peer pressure problem has a lot to do with the way school is structured. You know, everybody is the same age, forced to be together, forced to associate, because simply we're just the same age and from the same general geographical region. So that being said, I wanted to move on to the next argument, which in a home education environment solves that problem. And that was the argument for creating a diverse network. Home-educated children, through adult relationships, mixed-age contacts, real work, and community interaction, are better able to create diverse networks for learning, projects, hobbies, and ultimately work. A network of people a child can build can be hugely valuable over time for jobs, opportunities, etc. Conversely, a network of all the people from your town and your exact age is less valuable than uh, the more diverse set a child could build on his or her own. Plus, the network built in school is based on arbitrary groupings of people by age and geography, not mutual interests or how value can be created and shared. This is the true value of a network. Networks are not merely having lots of random dead-end acquaintances, but having relationships with people who can exchange knowledge and value. So we had talked a little bit before about you being in the drama club, even in the school setting. So let's contrast those kinds of relationships and interactions to basically what I was just describing, where I'm being shamed by a group of 25 peers with their eyes in a math class that we're all forced to be in, that we all are, you know, none of us are there because of some intrinsic motivation to learn math. But Drama yeah. Club was different. Yeah. Yeah. For me, um, you know, instantly all the age barriers, you know, melted. Uh, mm. And the Drama Club was something that we did voluntarily. So it was after school, often when as late as to seven or eight at night. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden, people with mutual interests uh, who chose to be there uh, got along wonderfully. And there was no, there was no uh, you know, uh, nerd part of the drama club and, you know, cool part of the drama club. Everyone, you know, was peers, uh, you know, regardless of, of what they looked like or, or what clothes they had. Uh, and, and it was just, you know, just night and day between what happened in, um, say, math class or, or English class. Yeah. And I, I found that with any, I'm trying to think, we had this one uh, class where I had a, a very similar experience. Um, the most comfort that I ever had in school, in high school, was newspaper publications. It was an elective. I took it all four years, and we just worked on the newspaper. And it was really interesting because while we were talking about you know what we wanted the newspaper to be or what should be on the front page, there were all these potential areas for conflict. And we had conflict, right? But it was constructive mm -hmm. conflict. It never turned into personal attack 
or or ad hominem. It was like we really maybe part of it was like you know pretending to be news people, but it was fun, you know, and and it was so much more constructive than how things would go and say, oh god, gym class. Yeah, well, how much place. how much how much oversight did you have? Uh, by a teacher in the newspaper. One teacher, uh, total uh, deadhead. He definitely, you know, if he could have, he probably would have hung out with the stoners, um, <laughs> you know, in, uh, outside the school. But he was um, really uh, laissez-faire about the whole process. He was an English teacher at the school. He was a really good guide, but he didn't over-assert himself in any way. You know, I just remember being in the class and it was it was totally alien from the rest of the school environment. We'd be up, we'd be walking around, we'd be listening to music, playing with Windows 95, running um, pieces of paper through hot wax machine and then pasting them onto the to the newspaper templates. And it was so comparatively free to the uh, to the rest of the school experience. So, yeah, he he was there kind of working with us and being very cautious about how he would guide what we were doing, but he never felt like the teacher. You know, I had him in English as, a, as an English teacher, too, and that was a different role for him. But uh, you know, this experience was amazing. And I actually had a, a couple of lasting friendships with, with people who were way outside of my peer group. I mean, we were, I remember it was like third period, first day of high school. And I was so scared. You know, I was 14. I was in ninth grade. And for the first time in my life, I'm just, you know, brushing past these 18 year olds who are like six foot two, you know, six foot four in the yeah. hallways of this school. And suddenly we're in this this room where it's like, you know, me sitting next to a popular senior girl, you know, who I remember was like, I thought she was gorgeous. And she just turns to me and starts talking. And, you know, it, it was it was really, really interesting how all those kind of barriers that the school tries to set up immediately came down in that room. Yeah, and then uh, I'm I'm going to guess that um everyone probably quickly knew what skills and what strengths uh everyone had to bring to the projects um you know through working together which which doesn't happen in in the, in the other school environment. You know, that's really the basis when people think of professional networks. Uh I sometimes talk to young people and everyone sort of beats them up about um how how valuable the network is and yeah. it's true it's it is it's very true um but they don't know how to make one you know they they are trying to guess you know do i take people golfing do i take people to lunch or how how do i do this and it's really not until you uh work with people and people understand what what sort of mutual value you can bring to the relationship that a true network emerges yeah um and i have to imagine it was like that in drama club um and I have to guess it was like that in the newspaper thing, too, is that as you got to demonstrate what you could actually do with other people, you learned how to work together, that sort of the trust and value parts of, of the network could emerge. Yeah, and contrast that to the school environment where the rest of it is just about survival. You know, back to the math class, it's just like we're all just trying to get through the next 45 minutes. No one is recognizing how anybody else in that room could add value, right? We're all just these sort of, I mean, with the setup, we're sort of like these valueless buckets, <laughs> you know, that information is being yeah. put into. And and there isn't much to realize beyond that. So how has this changed? And just for people who, for some reason, maybe didn't hear the first part, you had children who were in school. You said about a year and a half ago, you took them out in favor of doing home education. What have you been able to build um, regarding uh, networks? Uh, or what have they been able to build more, more importantly since then? Uh, well, you know, they're, they're, they're young kids. They're, um, four, seven, and nine. Mm -hmm. 
there's not they don't have a tremendous network. There's there's a few there's a few other families that we see very often. Uh, they have the neighborhood kids, and then there's a larger homeschooling group uh, that gets together to play on the beach and stuff like that. You know, so it's not it's not a, an expansive network, but they do have you know they do have very good friendships. And at this point, I'm just happy that they're not you know sort of anti-networked or you know forced into that math class situation. Right. And you know, so we mostly let them play. You know, they play a lot. That's pretty much all they do because we're unschoolers, so, mm-hmm. so they they just follow and they they do what they want. Um, so I'm I'm very curious to see as they get older uh, how that network experience uh, unfolds. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we uh, I I worked with a, a group of unschoolers here uh, a few years ago, and they it, it's easy to find like-minded people, I will say just as a caveat, it takes a little bit of effort to hold it together, you know? And and then there's the question about how to hold it together, and if it doesn't stay together, is it uh, a valuable network? You know, because we tried to bring, like, groups of people, and, and we were we were trying to cover a pretty large geographical area, because uh, the, the person I was working with was fairly rural. So we were trying to bring people in from, like, other towns that were half hour, 45 minutes away. But there is a lot of uh, free-spirited folks, you know. Part of trying to do this networking in home education is the realization that, yeah, you know, something might be cohesive for a while and then just kind of dissolve as interests change, and they will. But there's certainly lots of opportunities for building them. And they yeah. don't have to be huge, you know. I mean, you you get together with two, three, four other families, if, if you're lucky, and uh, that can be really valuable. Yeah, we're also, I mean, here in 2015, where us uh, home educators are massively crippled uh, in a way, because sure. if, if we were to look into a school list future, and some, you know, some of this exercise is uh, not just about my family, but thinking about, you know, sort of a de-schooled society, and that networking thing would be a thousand times different if uh, 70% of people were home educated instead of only uh, 3%. Oh, Yeah. My you know goodness. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and there's this, you know, there's another argument here for uh, having children around. Um, is that we're not going to discuss it today, but it's just so sad, in in my opinion, that all these families decide to have children and then decide then to port them off for fifty hours a week, you know, into a, you know, essentially a cinder block, you know, yeah, uh, for the majority of of their childhood. Um, and it would just be delightful if, you know, the, the neighborhood was brimming with children and, you know, you could hear them playing and you could go shoot hoops with them or teach them how to paint a picture or whatever. That's a really good point. I mean, it's like it goes back to what you were saying about isn't it weird and isn't it weird that I have to point this out to you that the superintendent decides what time everybody in your family wakes up and goes to bed. You know, it's it's the same thing is that these really potentially important social bonds that children could be forming based around interest and intrinsic motivation are essentially being determined by strangers, you know, and, and people completely pawn off this responsibility on the school because of like extra curriculars, which can have value like drama club did for you. But it also goes back to like what Peter Gray was saying about these structured activities like sports. It's not play. It's not you know, that was another place where I remember a lot of negative social interactions was like on sports team, freshman baseball, um, sophomore varsity golf, right? Like, it was like, yeah, hey, we're all here because we want to play golf. This is the only way we can play golf, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I'll tell you if I think you suck. <laughs> uh, and we, you know, and, and that was a totally different experience than before I was in high school. And me and my friends would just get dropped off by our parents at the country club. 
and we'd go play nine. You know, I remember it changing, and I remember saying, "Why isn't this as fun as it as it used to be?" First of all, you, such a good point that if more people, you know, took these matters into their own hands, starting with education, the entire structure and that that overbearing nature of the school, or that, that or that not overbearing but overarching nature of the school, will be the place where all these things are created. Different world. Even if even if it was ten percent more people, my goodness, it would be a different world. Absolutely, yeah. And one more thing about uh, networking: the opportunities that are available today because of the way people can connect that wasn't available when I was in school. I mean, home education would have probably been a fairly lonely place for me uh, twenty years ago, you know, and for you too, a little bit longer ago than that. And it's kind of sad to think, but it's like really moving in a way to think about how many people had to, throughout history, sacrifice individuality, sacrifice questions, interests, projects, all these different ways of asserting uh, themselves as an individual because all of their relationships were determined by geography. It's very difficult for me to understand how any social movement was organized, gained cohesion, and gained momentum you know, more than 20 years ago. Now, it happened, I think, because of people's motivation uh, at a lot of different times. But gosh, that must have been so difficult. And, you know, now we're seeing a preponderance of, of these kinds of movements. And obviously, that translates to children and home education families um, very easily as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just um, uh, just uh, thinking of being a libertarian back in 1995. Ugh. You know, it took me forever just to sort of find a subscription to Reason Magazine, and that was pretty much like the only thing that I even felt like I could interact with someone else. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, as compared to, to today, you know, with, with the how rich the community is now. Do you remember the first time you ever talked to another libertarian, like face-to-face? Oh, I was terrified. Uh, I went to a, um, a Cato event at the Harvard Club in Boston Yeah, to see uh, PJ O'Rourke speak. Yep, yep. He he was awful, or at least that day he was. Uh, but yeah, I was even just scared to talk to people at the table, and and they were all sort of equally terrified as well. Yeah, like to, to sort of mention uh, their worldview. Interesting. And, and I didn't have a very good political vocabulary back then too, so that didn't help. No one had ever had any practice in a, in a situation like <laughs> yeah. that, probably. All right. So uh, the next one: the argument against drug abuse. Children often learn about and experiment with recreational drugs through people at school. Most of the information they are given is from other students who are largely learning on the fly at the same time, hidden away from parental supervision. In home education, parents can better control children's access to drugs and provide their own education about drug usage according to their values and preferences. School is no guarantee of turning every student into a drug user, and home education is no guarantee of children not finding drugs, but the home educator likely has the favorable situation. And again, school seems to prompt the use of ADHD-type drugs more than anything. That's not kids abusing drugs. That's kids being abused with drugs. Yeah, I was talking to some friends recently about an eight- or nine-year-old physically active boy who was put on Adderall, which is a methamphetamine. Obviously, you know, it goes without saying that that is way too young. I mean, I don't think anybody should be taking a drug like Adderall, but eight or nine years old. And through confrontation uh, with the mother, whose father was a psychiatrist and certainly signed off uh, on that, it was determined that, yeah, he's on this drug, 
because uh, it makes life easier for me. That's essentially what it came down to. And yeah, I, it's it's just stunning that uh, a parent can see that a, a child is not doing well in school, and you know, it's immediately the child is defective, you know, and school has no scrutiny whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, and they immediately become enforcers for that conclusion, for that argument that yeah, it's sorry, it's your child, you know, and I have a my youngest brother who's fairly in the know about this problem. Uh, and I'm really, really grateful that he is because it's been recommended to both of his children, you know, through the school psychologist that they should be on ADHD medication. And I begged him, I begged him, like, just let me come to a meeting and we'll say, I'm the tutor. And we can make that true. I will tutor your son or your daughter and I will go in there as an advocate and you can just turn it over to me. You know, that was like a, a fantasy. But uh, he's hesitated to let me do that. And I think that he he was assertive about his views on giving, you know, powerful psychiatric drugs that are really even questionable for adults in many cases to a 14 year old or an eight year old. But that's just uh, that's just one aspect of what you wrote. I mean, we could talk about this a little more. I think it's um, one in 13 kids. Those were the numbers by last year. And if we consider how destructive some of these drugs are, that is alarmingly high. But what makes it even more frightening is how it's changed uh, since the time I was in high school. So I found some numbers that uh, compared roughly my high school period, 1993 to 1998, to uh, about the last five to 10 years, 2005 to 2006. And here are the... Uh, the changes. Prescriptions of antipsychotic drugs for per 100 children, 0 to 13 years old, rose from 0.24 to 1.83% from for 0 to 13 years old. That's more than a seven-fold increase. Given that most of the prescriptions are for the older children in this age range, the rate would be substantially higher among uh, preteens and 13-year-olds. For adolescents, 14 to 20 years old, the increase was fivefold in ten years. So. Yeah, well, there is a, there is sort of a good grand collusion, you know, between the psychiatry industry and the pharmaceutical industry too. Yeah, uh, you know, pushing, you know, sort of uh, pushing this together as a solution, and then you know, it could be a reflection of of how much more either controlling or tedious school is today than it was even when we were young. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me of the trapped rat experiment, right? Where most people are are choosing to without proper education on drugs, you know, they're going into more drug abusive behaviors, a lot of the time based on boredom, right? So it's like the boredom gets you either way, in a lot of cases, you know, easily, either you wind up using, um, you know, marijuana, or even dangerous drugs, irresponsibly, or alcohol irresponsibly, out of hopelessness and boredom, or your hopelessness and boredom is identified by the people at the school who just want to help and they've got a prescription for you for, in most cases, an even more dangerous drug. Wow, that's, that's uh, a superb finding. Yeah. I, might, I, might, I might even add that to this, uh, to this yeah. little write-up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. I mean, We can always come back to drugs that are handed out by school and people attached to school. And I certainly saw that. I was horrified by what I saw when I was working in a boarding school. And when you have these kids who are essentially captives, um, yeah, I guess they've decided, especially if the kids, it's even worse if the kids 
Uh, medical needs are funded by taxpayers because no one's watching that money. And I realized there was this real cozy relationship between the school, the states, and the pharmaceutical companies. And pharmaceutical reps would actually come to the school to lecture us supposedly about the disorders that the kids were struggling with. But they actually turned out to be like infomercials for the drugs plus dinner for like the education and, and clinical staff. That happened a few times. That was a huge wake-up call for me. And I was actually uh, giving out the medication at one point. That was my job um, or part of my job in, uh, in the dorms. So I wanted to ask you this, though, to shift a little bit. How did you learn about drugs in school, considering you're a little older than I am? It probably was uh, not till uh, the 13th grade right. that it was peer-to-peer um, -peer being turned on to uh, – a, a variety of drugs, and I've, I've taken just about everything. Yeah. Uh, at some point, but it's not like you're ever given like a real high quality roadmap to, you know, even to the basic stuff of you know dosages as to what what, what things are going to do with you. You know, it's just always some peer that's already you know uh, knocked off his block. You know, saying give this a whirl. Um, and so you sort of have to just really feel your way through it. And as uh, whether you're 14 or you're 19. You know, and especially if you're schooled, you haven't had this this grand uh, tradition of being able to make decisions for yourself, and it's like almost one of the first freedoms you know that a kid gets in some ways. Yeah, uh, because it has to be kept uh, hidden from teachers and parents. Right, and you know, I mean, for me, it started with marijuana. I think I was I, I was 16. I remember, you know, there's always all this discussion about marijuana being a gateway drug, but I actually think the Dare program is kind of a gateway. And a lot of people have talked about this experience where they were told in D.A.R.E., especially people my age, that marijuana would destroy lives, you know, that it would make you useless and that you would grow boobs. Um, those are all things that I remember, remember hearing. So when we smoked it, I think probably, you know, I mean, we weren't looking for some kind of third eye enlightenment experience. We were bored. You know, and this was something new to try. No one had ever taught us how to drink, so we weren't doing too good with that. <laughs> you know, like we would get sick and be like, oh, I'm never doing that again. I'm never doing that again. That was terrible because no one was watching us. I remember we would, you know, I remember rowing in a canoe with two of my friends like miles out into the woods so we could meet a bunch of other people and drink. And that's how kids drink. That's also how kids die. You know, in situations like that, because, you know, they have to basically escape from the, the watchful eye of people who don't want to provide any education uh, about these things or safe ways to do these things. So with marijuana, we realized, hey, you know, our lives aren't being ruined. We're not growing boobs yet anyway. We're not going blind or whatever. So maybe there was a lot of BS in D.A.R.E. And D.A.R.E. also talked about all of these other drugs maybe they're fine too. Maybe we should start getting into hallucinogens. And it was, we knew nothing about, and, and this, I know this is controversial and this isn't something that I've really gotten too much into on my show, potential benefits of certain hallucinogens or trying to have these enlightenment experiences. It was just about like, let's find the next thing and test it to see if dare or adults were lying about that too. You know? Yeah. Well, and going back to alcohol, uh, you know, you're supposed to stay absolutely hidden uh, all the way up until you have a certain birthday. And then it's like, oh, okay, now come out to a restaurant and have a drink with us. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, the kids are smart enough to see sort of the hypocrisy of that. Yeah, 
that suddenly just one day it's okay. Like, isn't that so weird, right? Because anything else that you do in life is kind of like a, a process. It's not. It's just not some com- arbitrary date that makes it okay. And I'm, I, certainly there's other countries that understand that, you know, that the the occurrences or the reported uh, occurrences of deaths from alcohol or rates of alcoholism are much lower in other countries that have more liberal attitudes uh, towards drinking as, as far as, you know, like, when is it okay? And how do you learn to do it responsibly? Um, the forbidden aspect of all of these things coupled with the need kids have to escape from boredom and a sense of meaninglessness in life, you know, that's a that's a dangerous combination that, you know, American laws and American schools create or help create, yeah. I should say, because it's it's a much broader problem than just that. I, I think I think it cripples uh, a parent's ability to have frank conversations, you know, because, you know, the parents don't know if, if they have a meaningful conversation about, uh, you know, marijuana with their kids you know, are, are the kids going to go back to the school and, and report that? Or are the parents not going to be seen as, as being in lockstep with the program of the school? Um, Which could be dangerous. Yeah, I mean, on a, on a lot of different levels. So, and it, it goes beyond just the school. It's probably our whole culture and the Ill- illegality of, of drugs that, that probably prevents uh, a lot of parents from ever being honest or open about the, the topic. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it can lead people to, uh, to some pretty bad places. You know, I mean, drug, again, it goes back to the, the whole carrots and sticks. You know, the only way to deal with these problems once they become problems is punitive measures. Most people never know anything beyond carrots and sticks, right? So I don't remember. I mean, I remember getting arrested for possession of marijuana when I was 16, seven, 16 or 17. We fell asleep in the car. At the golf course, we thought that with the golf course parking lot would be a safe place to like crash for the night. Me mm-hmm. and three of my friends. Well, we're woken up at three o'clock in the morning. The only car in the parking lot with the windows all fogged up. And, uh, you know, I guess police patrols take interest in that kind of a thing. So uh, I'm being hauled out of the car by uh, a cop. And I've got a quarter ounce of marijuana in my pocket that I had just purchased with my hard-earned money washing cars. And the cop, the first thing he says to me is, now you're going to jail. Within two minutes of, of being woken up, that was that was <laughs> yeah, what wow. I heard. Now you're going to jail. Did you flip out? No, I think I I felt like I completely shut down. Like I just froze. I I don't think I said anything. And you know, I remember my dad came and he picked me up at the police station, and the first thing he said was, "Are you okay?" You know, and that was nice. But I don't remember. And you know, it's not that my my parents, especially my dad, didn't try, but I don't remember a real specific conversation with anybody who was involved, from the cop to the parent to the court. Why did you do this? You know, what what led you here? What mm-hmm. makes you interested in this? It was something was done that was wrong, and what are the consequences going to be? It was like all the questions that could have been in between were skipped over and it just went event consequence. And, you know, it's worse. I mean, the school and the law, especially when it comes to drugs, and this is segueing into our next argument here, so much worse than uh, my parents were. So much willing to jump from event to consequence. Um, 
even though I, you know, in retrospect, it would have been nice if, if my parents were better at this. All they knew, all the, the school or the law knows is carrots, sticks, you know, tax incentives, jail, um, rewards, punishments. And when you're stuck in that paradigm, it's like, oh, something bad was done. So this clearly isn't time for rewards. So it's punishment, right? And then that, I remember too, I remember feeling this way myself. And I remember seeing this cycle with the kids that I worked with in, in reform schools. Oh, well, I'm clearly bad. So I think I should probably just keep doing things that are bad. You know, I'm already told I'm bad. I've already mm-hmm. been thrown in this hole. So, and then, you know, their parole officer or the authorities in whatever educational environment they were in or social workers would say, oh, you're doing more bad stuff. So let's see, we tried punishments and that led to more bad stuff. So this couldn't be a time for carrots. That wouldn't make any sense. So we probably need more punishments. And there was no empathy. There was no effort to connect. There was no effort to understand. There were maybe like gestures in that direction, like you're going to see a counselor, you're going to be able to talk to a counselor, but they were all part of that punitive system. That brings us to another stick, the argument against poverty and prison. Could home education reduce poverty and prison populations? Maybe, maybe not. But we can see how well decades of public school is doing against these goals. Implicit to school's stated mission is to prepare children to be productive, intelligent, and responsible citizens who can obtain good jobs and contribute. Has schooling, which is universally inflicted on our poor and often at huge expense, curbed poverty or crime in the past 100 years? Or do the poor seem to remain systemically poor while prison populations are rising? Home education probably couldn't perform worse, and home-educated children can have many more opportunities to learn responsibility, self-reliance, and real-world skills if they wish. The skills they learn can be a set that is custom to their needs, not the canned factory stuff the school students must endure. Think of it another way. Consider a framework like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where first, a human must satisfy their basic material needs, food, shelter, safety, before pursuing higher-order emotional and intellectual needs, A poor person, by definition, has fewer basic material needs that are met and should probably be spending their time filling that gap before chasing higher-order intellectual needs. But school doesn't allow this. It assumes that if we cram abstract knowledge, for example, literature, math, history, and science, into their heads, the gap will disappear magically. It might make more sense to let poorer people learn work skills when they are younger, and once they have rectified their basic needs, they can pick up the higher-order knowledge they would like to pursue. Let me restate this radical, bigoted idea. If we insist that poor children must be forced to learn something, first teach poor people how to not be poor, then later maybe teach them about American history, how to calculate the circumference of a circle, 19th century literature, etc. It's like there is somebody trapped in a deep hole and what he desperately and immediately needs is instruction on how to build a ladder. But instead of giving him that, we send down a confusing book with a map of Europe, some 500-year-old plays, a periodic table of elements, and a dodgeball. Maybe this has a bad aesthetic or seems unfair, but is it more fair to delude them and ourselves with a deceitful aesthetic that abstract knowledge is more important than obtaining basic needs? This approach would require discrimination, meaning treating different people differently, or letting students discriminate about what they want or need to learn. This is antithetical to schooling where everybody gets the same thing regardless 
of what might be of value to them. People are so terrified of discrimination that we'd prefer to maintain sameness at all costs instead of throwing the most needy the lifeline they need. But I'm not advocating that we force poor people to learn anything. After all, if the boring, dumbing-down, disengaging school experience is deleterious to the flourishing of affluent and middle-class children, it's probably doubly so for poor children. Why cripple the abilities of lower-income children? Why punch them when they are down? Lots of things contribute to poverty and crime, including family, culture, government, laws, luck, individual traits, circumstances, genetics, race, geography, and others. But school is in the mix. It definitely is. You said that you felt like that one might be fairly controversial, right? Yeah, my wife, uh, when reviewing this, said I probably shouldn't include this, and then, which, which was the first draft, and so I, I then went in to clarify things. Um, but what uh, she, for example, found most frustrating, she still went back to the, that the poor people should have an education type mentality, as if school would all of a sudden trans, you know, transform into a good thing for them, even though it's a bad thing for us. Yeah. And so that was what sort of had to be reinforced. And of course, you know, if you think about all of a sudden just releasing all the kids from school, you know, everybody's going to get images of them going back to their, uh, you know, their, their alphabet city, you know, apartments and, um, you know, the whole, uh, you know, crime scene of the wire, you know, right. unfolds a thousand times more than it is now. And, you know, that probably would certainly be true, maybe, or it could be an outcome if you suddenly just, you know, like shuttered the doors of the schools and, and, you know, uh, yeah, absolutely. That's the problem with any drastic overnight change like that. I agree with that. But go ahead. As you know, school as sort of a, as a fix for you know poverty at this point. Obviously, the government solution is to to sort of dumb everyone down at school, and then just to reinforce you know behavior with by sending them a check. And uh, you know, I, I, it doesn't seem to be working. Right. It's even it's even a little worse than than that because from my experience, school the school is like the lock on the door that leads out of poverty. And a lot of it has to do with this mindless rhetoric that is just parroted. And I remember parroting myself, right? School is the, school is education and education is the way out of your situation. The only way out of your situation, right? And then mm -hmm. from there, you need to go to college. Everybody can go to college today. The government is making it possible. So you do well in school and then you go to college and that's the way out of your current circumstances, you know, whether it's trouble with the law or, uh, you know, low income conditions or broken family, you have a way out. But this is the exact path that you need to walk. And a lot of kids say, and I've, you know, I've had it said to me by kids who are in this situation, well, that's a shame that this is the way out because this sucks, you know, <laughs> and I don't enjoy this and I'm not getting anything out of this. And even if I was willing to endure pain for some reward down the road, like getting out of poverty, I'm having like a really hard time here because everything outside of this is completely chaotic for me. You know, the neighborhood I live in, the family dynamic, you know, my single mother uh, or my alcoholic father, drug abuse father or drug abuse single mother, um, it's really hard for me to put in, you know, seven solid hours here and then come in and answer questions about like why I didn't do my homework. You know, I, and I remember that. And I remember being so neglectful of understanding that when I worked in a day school, like I worked in a boarding school for four years, but then I worked in a day school for two. And I was, I was really having a lot of, um, I think, 
idealism about the impact of a Jaime Escalante type uh, teacher, you know, who does the tough love thing. Because that was what really kind of changed for me in college. Like I was a terrible student and then I had this history teacher and he just, you know, he had very high expectations and he didn't really tolerate, I can't do it or that doesn't work, you know, and, and that drove me to be more successful educationally in a way. Now, the Jaime Escalante, it was so rare, that situation, that it was turned into a movie, uh, Stand and Deliver. But I took that hard-nosed approach, I think, with kids, when maybe there were some elements of that approach that were good, that tough love approach, but if it's not balanced with understanding of what was going on for them outside of the school, it was never going to be resulting in a meaningful connection that would really inspire mm -hmm. them and motivate them. It's like, oh, I see, you're just another one of these adults who bothers me, who's telling me I'm not good enough or I'm doing it wrong. And, uh, you know, I mean, I made a few valuable connections doing that, but I think if I had the knowledge that I had today, I could have formed uh, more meaningful bonds and driven less kids away or driven less kids to categorize me the same way, oh, here's another uh, bothersome adult who thinks they know what's good for me and thinks they understand me and is going to tell me what to do. I know how to sort them into, you know, do not listen to. Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly what the lesson of uh, John Taylor Gatto is. So when he was a teacher uh, in a poor neighborhood, his, he, he decided his whole job was going to be uh, to cover for the kids and to sort of protect them from the, both the institution and to whatever degree um, get their parents' cooperation. Yeah. And that's where he had his most, the most success was by um, not being the adult that bothered them, but being the adult that sort of protected them and advoca advocated for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, if we were trying to imagine what a, um, a, a transition from, you know, and this is, we're now talking science fiction, but a transition from, you know, a, a non, a school, school society to a de-schooled society. I could imagine that the, the schools would start to look like perhaps more of like a Sudbury model where if the poor children had to come in and, and just needed four hours to sleep undisturbed, that, you know, you would let them and it would, you would start just using the, this, whatever school function as, as a way to advocate and, you know, protect the children, uh, instead of trying to educate them. Or right. school, that school them rather. I don't know. That's just you know. I, I'm just trying to think into the future, and you know, I, I obviously don't have it all figured out, and you know, nor, nor nor could anyone. Yeah, it's very hard to see that from here, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's that's why I think my wife had such a problem, uh, just because it's so hard to to imagine what would happen to these children. Yeah, this cycle that you mentioned, it continues to dig a deeper and deeper hole. This is how you succeed. Oh, you can't succeed. Well, it's we'll still subsidize your failure to succeed. Oh, you know? I loved, uh, you, you said one time, um, we can't afford to buy you an ice cream cone, so we punch you in the face. Ah. I don't know if you remember saying that. It was uh, one of your early podcasts, but I thought it was brilliant. But it's essentially how we treat the, you know, sort of treat the poor, yeah. is that we can't do something good for you, so instead we'll punch you in the face. I, I, might, I might need to rework that, right? Because it doesn't, getting a check doesn't necessarily, fee even if it is, you know, consequently a punch in the face doesn't feel like it and that's a big part of the problem right like how many times is somebody gonna get get punched in the face you know in lieu of ice cream before they say wait a minute this just doesn't work this is i don't care for this arrangement at all you know it's kind of like giving um god i remember like food behavior modification you know we'll take kids to mcdonald's 
Yay, McDonald's. Well, it's more like that, right? Like here, here's a reward, Big Macs and fries and Cokes, right? But how long before that is costly? And are you paying attention to how costly that actually is? Mm -hmm. I think McDonald's, you know, we can't afford to nourish you, but we will take you through the McDonald's drive-thru. Yay, McDonald's. That's more representative of uh, the welfare state, right? Yeah. And we've also, in, in let's say the middle class, we, you know, due to probably taxes and our consumption patterns, we've, we've really taken a, a couple swings at the family structure. And so, you know, the family is, is probably deeply wound in the schooling problem as well. Yeah, without a doubt. Families are, in many ways, kind of broken by the state and state interventions at various income levels, right? Yeah, I mean, I think at the at the middle income levels, uh, you have you know taxes and our and our expected consumption patterns makes it so uh, mothers feel compelled to have a full time job uh, to the fact that, you know to the point where it's almost automatic for most families, and to have a, a successful unschooling uh, experience, I think the family needs to be you know closer to the children. Either a mother or father uh, need to be home uh, to work with them. At the lower income levels, it seems that the welfare state probably encourages families, uh, mothers to have children when they're not financially ready, uh, and also encourages fathers to not necessarily be around. And so it's hard to imagine having successful homeschooling experiences, you know, when the family isn't there to really uh, provide support. Yeah. And and families are also broken by uh, the legal system where it seems to be in many cases, there's more incentive to dissolve relationships, um, especially marital relationships, um, as opposed to working on them. And and then, of course, whoa, this is such a tangled web. We get into the psychological where people might not even know what working on a relationship means, you know, emotionally, uh, intellectually. Um, where would there ever been any training for that? So again, it's like this binary choice, this perception of a binary choice where there isn't one. The relationship works, great, high five, or the relationship doesn't work, too bad, divorce. Yeah, well, just even think of day to day, the school experience. We have, I think we mentioned this in the first show, there's this uh, constant rush to like, it's get up at 530 in the morning, you know, wake up, you know, eat your breakfast, uh, get your clothes on, you know. Here, uh, right, race to the, the uh, race to the uh, school bus and then to work, and yeah. then it's come home and go to soccer practice, do your homework, uh, quick eat this, um, you know, watch half hour of television, and then go to sleep so you can get up. That experience is, you know, is hell for the children, but that's um, the adults are living that too, and you know, so maybe instead of that half hour, children they get to argue about, um, you know, how they don't have enough money to buy, you know, X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And, you know, so like how, how, how are we having, you know, these wonderful loving relationships while we're racing as fast as we can from one destination to the other, you know, for all of these, you know, obligations that are mostly tedious and stressful. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the whole children through school experience can really test relationships in ways that most people might not be able to deal with. There's so many more like that whole experience in dealing with all of those questions and challenges create so many more opportunities for conflict, uh, especially. And I, I remember having a friend and his younger brother had such a difficult time with school and getting into trouble that he really believed that my friend really believed that his brother 
led to his parents' divorce. Now, obviously, there's all kinds of exploration we could do there. How strong was their relationship before that? If it could be fractured and ultimately broken by the juvenile delinquents uh, of one of their children. But it does put people at odds, like people come together and maybe because philosophy is such a, an overlooked um, aspect, people come together for reasons of geography or convenience or attraction, and they get married without ever realizing, wow, we have some really fundamentally different values. But that is discovered when the question of how to raise children comes up. I remember mm -hmm. one of my relationships going south extraordinarily quickly, a relationship that was really important to me, that a person I was really in love with, when the issue of spanking came up. And their response was, I was spanked and I turned out fine. You know? And that uh, was enough? That was enough to, uh, just that debate was enough to sour the relationship? It, put, it, it provided some powerful momentum. I mean, this was 2000, 2010, so I was in like a really, really significant period of uh, discovery with things like free domain radio and wanting um, a philosophical consistency and an authenticity in, in my relationships and realizing that it was, if I was going to have a future with somebody, it was really, really important to be on the same page about certain things. And, you know, I was already doing the podcast. Um, and it, it, it was a, an accumulation of things. Mm -hmm. Um, but that was a really significant one that really provided a lot of momentum, I think, in a, in a direction we were already headed, which is like, yeah, you know, uh, we have a good time together and we're attracted to each other and we love certain things about each other. But, you know, when the rubber hits the road, as far as a future together is concerned, we're not on the same page about things we really need to be on the same page about, you know. Mm -hmm. So it was it was a significant contributing factor. But most people don't listen to free domain radio. Most people don't read Nathaniel Brandon or or Peter Gray, and they have to find out about a lot of those values conflicts the hard way. And I, I think that could really suck, you know. If you oh yeah, you know, you know they don't even um, they don't even get to identify them or, or or diagnose. They just get to live within the frustration um, of being in conflict. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's so you just experience the pain. It's not like you experience the pain and then go, oh yeah, uh, you know. Molyneux or, or Brandon said, I'd be experiencing this if I, if my, uh, virtues went in line with, uh, the person I'm, I'm in love with, you know. Yeah. It just must be, it must be a, a hell that a lot of people are just sort of walking through blindly. Yeah. And, and exacerbated by, and we talked last time about, you know, the school looming over the family in so many ways. And, and this is certainly one of them because Johnny has to get through school successfully and success looks like this and if he doesn't what are we doing wrong is it me husband or is it you wife you know or or, or what is it and I, I just i remember seeing my parents in conflict about that and their marriage you know in many ways was doomed from the start but uh i think a lot of people who could potentially have healthy lasting relationships don't because they're just blindsided by by those challenges yeah from there we'll move on to the 11th reason in our 12, the argument for vacation. Even if we concede that school is just, good, and necessary, it's bizarre that the superintendent gets to dictate when everybody gets to have a vacation. This creates a ridiculous rush for everybody in a state to go on vacation at the same time. It creates scarcity for plane tickets and hotel rooms, raising prices and reducing availability. 
It creates traffic jams. Beaches and ski slopes are packed. Amen. My goodness. This is a this is a valuable insight right here. And don't even try to go to a theme park during these weeks as you'll pay through the nose for the privilege of waiting in lines for 90 minutes per attraction. Who wants to wait in line? It's torture, not vacation. The ration vacation time also creates anxiety. Many families have some panic about making sure they enjoy themselves with the little time they have. The massive disappointment when it rains on vacation is partially ignited because the family knows they can't extend it due to scheduling. They know it's going to be months before they are allowed to go again, and it already costs so much. If school systems were a little sensible in this area, they would at least stagger vacations by region to alleviate the artificial rush and make travel more convenient, affordable, and enjoyable for the families it supposedly serves, or at least introduce some flexibility to take time off instead of instilling panic about students missing assignments or taking tests. But they don't, and hence we show up and take our breaks when they are commanded of us. What terrible nonsense. Home educators decide when they want to go on vacation and can pick the times that are smart. They also don't have a rationed amount of time available to them. If three weeks isn't enough, they can take more or take less. Homeschool families don't have to pack their family time into a few weeks per year or wait until the school says it's okay to have leisure time or feel like they have to get away from the pressures and grind of the day to day. Many homeschool families don't need a lot of vacation. They live it instead. Has that been the case for you in the last uh, year and a half? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so um, we're able to take off wherever we want. Um, but, you know, more importantly, we don't we don't like feel like we have to, um, you know, like go unwind on a beach, you know, uh, because we're so, you know, panicked with the day to day. And so, you know, or we have to pack in all of our family time, you know, into a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, and you know, it takes, takes the pressure off too. Um, but it's weird cause we still, uh, the last few vacations we've, t- we've taken, we've had them with other families that have kids in school and you just can't believe the anxiety they have not to miss a single day, you know, whether, you know, on either leave early or, or come back late. Um, we had one family visit us who actually chose to uh, drive all the way from, from South Carolina to Massachusetts in one fell swoop because they had to be back by Monday to make sure the kids were in school. Right. The other time we went to uh, Disney and we made the mistake of going during school vacation week and we go to the ticket counter and they're like, well, that's, you know, it's, it's uh, $98 to, um, to get in the park. But if you want, we have a speed pass that, you know, you should really get for 127 and I'm like, oh, well, for only, you know, 30 more bucks, I guess that's a good value. And they're like, no, it's 127 on top of your uh, $97 ticket. So Per person? Yeah, per person. So it would have been like uh, over $1,000 just for the day to get my family through the gate. And it, it turned out that we should have taken the pass because everybody only got to go on one ride the entire day uh, <sighs> because of the lines. So, you know, that was me not taking the lesson of home education, but... You know, we were, we were with another family that, you know, only had that one week to right. go. And it was the exact same week that everybody else in the nation was going to be on vacation. And if you think how air- airports are set up, you know, I mean, airports are regional, right? So if Massachusetts takes, uh, insists that it's the same week for all of Massachusetts, it's going to be Logan that's going to be, uh, that's going to be, you know, maxed. You know, it doesn't matter if, if, uh, Ohio, uh, chooses a different week. Yeah. So it's really, it's really kind of stupid. This is uh, one of the best practical arguments I've ever heard. 
and it's never occurred to me. And, and, and you know, like for somebody who's been self-employed for the last two or three years, you know, making making my own schedule and having this kind of freedom to like, I'll I'll sometimes I'll wind up at the grocery store downtown on a Saturday. And I'm like, where the hell did this habit come from? Why am I here now? You know, I could yeah, be here. And, and, I, and I've actually, when I identified that, I when 8.30 rolls around on a Tuesday and I see I'm running out of food, I say, aha, now is the time. And it certainly is. Yeah, you, you know, get the store to yourself. Right? I don't have to stand in a line behind a bunch of people who have no other choice. And these theme parts, I mean, that's to spend $100 on food for one or two people. You know, a thousand dollars at a theme park to be in line for 90 minutes and to call it a vacation. That's intolerable. That's intolerable. And we never did vacations like that. We were, you know, I, I think my my dad was good and my parents were good about like finding more creative, quiet spots. But yeah, that that is insanity. And that's not just me. I mean, the, the lines were so long because there was um, 20,000 other dummies who were <laughs> who showed up there, too. Yeah. Exactly. Home education for better vacations. Sold. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So uh, let's just finish up with the last one. This, this is a quick one, but I wanted to include it because I think this is where most people hit that resignation wall with this. And, and, and certainly there, there are some challenges with switching from school to home education. And I do understand that at certain times in certain situations for certain people, those challenges could be insurmountable. But your last argument the final personal argument from experimentation and low risk. The final case for home education is the easiest to justify. Try it. There's almost no risk. Take a few months or maybe a year and try it out. Don't like it? You can always go back to public school. The administrators will welcome your child back with open arms and gladly tell your children to get back in line and shut their mouths. The public school won't disappear this year or next. Experiment and see what happens. See if your children and yourself are happier. See if you enjoy more family time and the convenience home education provides. See if engagement and curiosity reemerge. Yeah, and you know, you were uh, you were lucky that you took this action, I think, w when you did. I, I would imagine that pulling, and this is a conversation I've had with my brother about his 15-year-old, there's a lot of damage done. Pulling a sophomore mm -hmm. in high school, like as somebody who, who's been forced to endure two years of middle school, which is the darkest time of, of public school, in my opinion. Yeah, it's hard to take them out and give them this freedom and have this expectation that they're going to, you know, re-engage in things that they're, you know, intrinsically motivated to pursue and that this curiosity and this creativity is just going to reignite overnight. In fact, I've talked to people like um, Dana Martin and Laurette Lynn, uh, both home educating mothers, about uh, this decompression period that a lot of people will experience that could last several months as you know, sleep cycles and eating cycles uh, readjust and they become accustomed to to this freedom. You know, it's the same thing as like boarding up the schools uh, overnight tonight. Like what would tomorrow look like? Probably not very peaceful, probably not very serene. Uh, and, and I think uh, individuals like children or teenagers are going to have uh, similar experiences at first. But I remember, I mean, you're talking about young children that you have who had only made it as far as elementary school. I remember elementary school is like general, generally fun times. That's kind of how they get you. 
it's kind of how they get the hooks in you, you know? Like, yeah. Hey, like, wasn't uh, this fun? Kindergarten is pretty much, you know, is mostly playing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With with a lot of structure. I met one one homeschooled adult who um, sounded like a pretty good path. Their parents took her out very early. And then by the time she was would be a junior aged in high school, she did want to go back to school to like find a boyfriend. But her, her parents were able to uh, falsify what classes she had taken. So she essentially had like three hours of electives, you know, like pottery, uh, music and uh, drama or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, I could see that being kind of a neat path, you know, if my kids were interested in it mm-hmm. and uh, I could figure out the technicalities. But yeah, no, I've heard about that, that decompression where, you know, you almost just let them watch TV or, you know, just space out for a long time. Yeah. Let them get bored with other harmful things. You know, <laughs> now, the, now what I would warn, we, we had so much, my wife and I had so much anxiety going into this, even though we understood everything, we still had this urge to recreate school at home. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we were, you know, desperately terrified, you know, that we'd screw it up, you know, that somehow we weren't the experts. And again, this is, this is after I've read everything. So this, this is how ingrained I know this mentality is in people. Um, but so what we had to do is we had to surround ourselves with curriculum and just to see uh, curriculum online and just get sort of used to seeing that you could do it yourself. Yeah. And what we ultimately did is we, we bought a lot of stuff and then never, never used it. You know, the kids came, you know, came home and uh, they just started, you know, living their lives as they wanted to, you know, in that, sure, that, yeah. that unschooling way. But it just took a lot of preparation for us to to take the jump. Yeah. And so it, maybe it's kind of flip of me to say that this is the easiest to justify because I think it's, it is really difficult for parents, especially if they were schooled and they're in, you know, everyone they know is, is sending their kids to school and their parents, you know, are against it. You know, there's just a lot of homework that you have to do to be ready to try it. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, an honest conversation that needs to go on with everybody in the family about motivation, right? Because it's easy to decide that school ba- is bad. School will help you all day right? It's easy to decide that that's not an educational or enriching experience. Case closed, you know, as far (laughs) as I'm concerned. But then the question of what to do about it. Well, this is a move that is definitely going to create new challenges for everybody. You know, and it goes back to what I was saying in the first show. You really need to be able to communicate honestly about what the willingness is for each individual involved to make a plan. You know, I mean, you're taking control. You're taking responsibility here. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Cause, I mean, if you think about how easy it is to make the decision to school, mm. you know, the kid turns five, you look up where the closest school is, and then you just send them, and then you don't think about it. Yeah, you find uh, out where the bus stops. <laughs> yeah, you find out when, when you have to pick them up or, yeah, yeah where the bus uh, drops off. And then you don't think about it for 13 years, and then it's done and you still haven't thought about it. You know, how easy is that? But all of a sudden to think of, I'm going to take on a 13-year journey or, you know, continue the journey I've already had for five years mm. and, and you know, until my, my child's an adult, um, you know, maybe that, that, is, that is kind of scary. You're actually signing up uh, for a lot more than just dropping them off at the school bus in some ways. Oh, yeah, you sure are. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a big plan to make. So um, I really uh, I commend you um, for what you've done, and it's always such a pleasure uh, for me to be able to talk with somebody like you who has gotten a little experience uh, under his or her belt with this. It really, really adds value to the show, and it motivates me as well to, uh, to be able to get firsthand experience from people who are uh, succeeding you know, with this challenge. 
And, you know, also, like I said at the beginning of the show, where you were when you made this decision, yeah, that's a challenge. Um, I don't remember, you know, my, my whole time there uh, working with these wealthy overachievers in the greater Boston area with, uh, you know, dad is some high-powered lawyer, but mom still has a full-time job for some reason, and there are no other options. And how do we steer uh, Susie or Jimmy back on the right track according to the school? That was exhausting work. And, um, you know, it's, it's a tough place to be in Massachusetts, but it, that attitude is pretty prevalent all over the country. Uh, people not thinking that they have options, not wanting to look at the options they might have that would produce uh, much happier children, you know, and much happier families, you know, as you, as you've pointed out in these, in these 54 arguments. So, um, you know, thank you so much for your contribution to the show. And uh, is there anything you want to say in closing? Just uh, thank you so much for, for give, giving me this opportunity to come on the show and talk. And uh, I do encourage everyone to read all 54. And I, um, I suggest in the introduction that it's, it's not a closed project, but you know, hopefully we get to argument number 60 and then to argument number 70. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I think the pathologizing of you know, student behavior could be probably number 55, you know, the, whole, the whole drug thing. I never added the, the argument for obedience or for apathy. You know, those could be added. Mm. You know, I could take uh, Gatto's uh, eight arguments, you know, such as surveillance and add those as well. So I would, you know, if anyone wants to, if any of your listeners want to send me ones that I've missed, uh, please do. And I'll, uh, I'll take them into consideration and write them up. That's a great idea. Collaboration. Who knows? We could have a thousand in a couple months. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I like that idea. It's definitely uh, your blog is linked in the show notes. And uh, I'm going to start a thread about that in the group. And, um, you know, you, you made each one of them fairly easy to read. Each one of them is concise, but contains the relevant information. And I know there's a lot of people in our community that could uh, add to that uh, in this in the same format. So Jeff, thank you uh, so much. And I look forward to updates. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please help us out by leaving a positive review on iTunes. If you were angered by the show, please help us out by leaving negative reviews everywhere. If you think this is an important message for students, for parents, or for the future of intellectual freedom, please consider supporting us at schoolsucksproject.com AV. For $6 a month, you'll get access to hundreds of additional hours of content while helping us grow and spread this message further. Thank you.